There exists a, a place in space and time in which the very essence of the sacred is experienced. The human heart and soul, when noble and true and supple in offering and reception, can know this place <clears throat> if one is blessed and privileged really humbly and nobly to receive this. If one is able in prayer, aspiration, philosophy, seeking, devotion, loving, practice, to receive this, in the next breath is the question, and then what? And then who am I? And then what is God going to do? What is the universe going to do? What am I going to do? What are you going to do? What are we going to do? And in that hesitance, in that, in that moment, in all space, we most always wait to see what goes first. And we assume in fear that something will go first. God will go first, and then I can know what to do to protect myself. God will go first, and then, you know, it's his fault. <clears throat> God will go first, and then she'll show me what to do. The universe will act, and then, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily what I want, but... Or the universe will act, and then I'll, I'll decide what I want. <clears throat> and we call that looking in the mirror. Oh, I'm here. I'm looking at a reflection of what I don't know. I'm looking at a reflection of what's not possible. At what I do to armor myself against everything. Against the creator, against grace, against everything. So that I will exist hopefully, maybe, possibly one more breath beyond whatever it is that God is doing. And in our faith and beliefs and cosmologies and societies, families, all the ideas we have about ourselves, importance, great self-regard, very little self-respect, we still go, but at least I will exist against that. Or I will exist with it, but safely, you know, because I will have stopped, I will have stopped the grace to exist so that I know what to do next or to wait and see, is it safe? <clears throat> well, how is God not always safe? How is the universe not always safe? You're just a speck of that or a child of that. Why wouldn't you move in absolute synchronicity with it, symbiosis of that one life? that oneness in which you are also a particle. You go, it is all one and I am here of that oneness, child of that oneness. <clears throat> so it's difficult to untrain ourselves from the separation into the grace-filled union because virtually almost every moment from when we're conceived teaches us, no, not yet. No, not here. No, not safe. So we're in our mother's protection and then in our father's aura all around her 
in his protection and then our grandparents and our elders and our cousins and our siblings and our neighbors and our classmates and it goes on and on until we take our last breath. I read something this last week about <clears throat> what people often are noting in the last moments of their lives. And their general regret is often what they did not do. And this is my extrapolation verbally. What they did not do out of that oneness. I wish I had simply spent more time with my spouse or my loved ones, my family, my garden. It's like they breathe and go, oh, you know, the oneness of my roses holding the hand of my partner. Of course, no one was going to kill us. We weren't going to harm anyone. How did we not know that? Well, because you were taught that everything around you was trying to stop your path, kill you, harm you, take everything you have and are. <clears throat> and if we study the history of warfare and famine and saber-toothed tigers, it's terribly thrilling. And it teaches us gap after gap after gap. The next breath is never safe. There will be no next breath in you, in me. Or if you take a next breath, I die. Right. You'll have the lance and my sword will be inadequate. My gun won't be as great as yours. Mine will be greater than yours and my child will prevail and I'll get everything and you'll have nothing. And we believe that that's what it is to be a human being, but it is not. It would be as if we all said, let's have a gang. And to be in the gang, you've got a pledge to not live. Okay. Everybody goes, okay, I'm in. And we go, and then we'll all know what to do, and God will lose and we'll win. I go, against what? And somebody, a secular humanist, which is very present in many young people because they're so upset about religion being used as a device of armoring, they use the universe to, to fight. Well, you know, I'm very cosmic, not like my dad. I go, oh, okay. And so they use the cosmos as the weapon against, you know, their father or their mother or their sibling. I go, well, that's like really not intelligent. And they're, they're well, there's something out there. And I go, of course there is. The vast samadhi or satori, the great dreaming of God, ecstatic and pure, of which you are a particle, a child. And then the heart, the very center of the heart, the heart chakra, the spiritual heart, all through the chest area, goes, oh, and we begin to feel our breath and our heart chakra together and our inner voice through the heart chakra and the throat chakra. And we go, oh, I part of that dream of God. I part of that dream of the universe. Oh, as we are dreaming, God and I, the universe and I, there is dawn, the dawning, the moment the next breath. <clears throat> and in that dawn is light. And out of the stillness, the still point of eternity, sound. And then the cells of the body through one's breath enact the dawn. The perfect wonder of that next moment of existence is you, is me, is us is our life.
And then the fruit of that is our path. The fruit of the gesture of the expression of that dawn is our path. If one is <clears throat> fortunate enough to know how to paint or to draw or to sculpt <clears throat> or to compose music or to play music or to sing, one knows this creative experience and one tends to be in society slightly invalidated, <clears throat> slightly heartbroken, because the society comes in armored, partially receiving the artist or musician, but negating them until we decide that their artistry is not going to kill us or harm us or take us to the next moment inadequately. <clears throat> so almost universally, your artistic people are a bit ashamed of their vulnerability. <clears throat> they are apologetic about their sensitivity. I'm sorry. You know, I'm so sorry. I just, the way I feel things, I'm really sorry. <clears throat> and my answer might be, for what? What an extraordinary sort of clock you are representative of time. You're, you're like a, a clock tower or a sundial standing out in the full day or the moonlight. And you are showing humanity in this moment, at this time, see, look, a chestnut, an acorn, a blade of grass, moonlight, a cloud. And then you enact the dawn with your next breath. It's just in you. The artists always go first. Here we go, humanity, into the era. Spoken of by the Hopi, the Zulu, some of the great Taoist and yogic masters of East and South Asia. Oh, now, this breath, every breath, into the future, into eternity. Listen. And then someone composes a piece of music because he or she can hear and enact the dawn in this breath, in every breath as we go forward. So <clears throat> this era is currently being created all through us during this period when much of our mental attention is on bickering, kind of these foolish, actually immature arguments between nations, by leaders, between religions, between elements of society. And we're in a reductionist period. Nobody's ever enough. Nothing anyone does is enough. <clears throat> or what someone does is famous or important because it's very wealthy or it's born fruit by either just the karma, the pathway of the person or the organization or the family or the nation, <clears throat> or there's been hard work or there's been grasping. And so someone says, I have a lot, I'm safe. And then another person feels, well, I'm, I'm not very safe. And then the person who feels that they have a lot or they have importance or politically they're 
statement is very aggressive against another nation or leader. Their statement is kind of the weapon. You know, I'm cool and you're not, or I'm rich and you're not, or I know what I'm doing. I go, well, maybe. And yet, <clears throat> for me as a mystic, what is really present in the era is the nature of the future and the past meeting at a time of exquisite maturation, extraordinary transformation. I've been privileged to see animals and people where there will be a moment when they turn toward very great consciousness and then they come forward to communicate that in a manner that is breathtakingly beautiful or breathtakingly heartbreaking. And when this occurs, the, the being doesn't leave the oneness and how they know that they are of the love of God embodied. And the next breath and moment are safe because they have expressed to me that oneness, that incredible love. And then in myself, I'm responding to that. The animal or the person and I are alive in that next moment. And we get to experience side by side our relationship in God with one another. I would call that love. When this happens in a society, moments are sparked in light and sound, which become universal or regional. An example I'll use from the Western Hemisphere and the Indo-European traditions, of which I am born in, my, in the various cultures of my heritage, <clears throat> there are painters who've come forward, or sculptors, and two events I've spoken of, three events I've spoken of often, would be coming into uh, the museum, the Uffizi Museum in Florence, Italy, which I have visited several times, which is an extraordinary privilege. And I really have gone there because of other people. My work is usually taking me out in other venues of, our, of geography. <clears throat> but I had the privilege of my sister journeying with me many years ago into parts of Europe. And she studied art history and loves loves Western European art. So I thought, well, we'll go into the Uffizi and she can see these paintings she studied. We came into the beautiful old building. The building itself is as significant as the art. It's old wooden structure in Florence on the Arno River. And we came walking in to the room with the Botticelli's. And my sister came to me and said, I I, I think I need to sit down. I, I think something, she thought something was wrong. She started to become very faint. And they had at that time, they've changed the room since they had a large bench in the center of the room. And she put her hand up to her forehead like an old Victorian woman and sat down. And I came and sat with her and asked her to go right. And she said she was just so moved to physically be in the place of them, the coloration, the light, the transmission of whatever had happened through Botticelli centuries before and what was happening in my younger sister, my only sister, being able to physically be there with me at the very site 
caused oneness. And then in the next breath, rather than being armored, it became, ah, ah, I'm faint, I, oneness. Across the centuries, with Botticelli and God and my sister and myself. So when we experience a moment like this, our challenge is we often don't know how to go forward. What do we do? And our, our mind goes out in discernment to try to remember in the ancestry of ourselves all the times and places that go on long before we were conceived in which our ancestors were killed, suffered deprivation, famine, loss of a child, treachery, death, violence, torture, abandonment, harm, migration. And we search to try to remember what to do. And the discernment only shows a cup-like quality of how to contain our cells of our body safely from behind us. But it doesn't show us how to enter the present moment into the next moment. That is always in the mystery of God or the universe. We take the next breath. And if we can embody dawn, oh, God and I are facing Botticelli's paintings in our souls and hearts and minds. Or we're facing the artwork of human beings from all of history who were trying in their next breath to meet the same dawn, the same unarmored moment into time throughout all space, but through the space of ourselves, of our incarnation, well, then that would be a renaissance to be lived.